Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. Tonight's interview is particularly compelling because it is focused on groundwater, and we are experiencing a summer of extreme drought. Tonight's show is pre-recorded, so I won't be able to take any questions, but my interview includes a conversation I had with David Drawley, a hydrologist who has contributed to extensive research on subsurface water storage capacity and its relationship to things like plant productivity, stream flow variability, and runoff. David received his PhD in environmental engineering at UC Berkeley and his master's in applied mathematics at Columbia University. And he's also been included in many publications on the topic. Tonight's conversation is focused on how groundwater is stored in the coastal and inland geologies of the Eel River and much of Mendocino County. So please enjoy, and thanks for listening to KZYX, community-supported radio. Tonight, I am joined by David Drawley, who is a hydrologist with the U.S. Forest Service Pacific Southwest Research Station. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you for a few reasons. One, I saw a presentation that you gave to the Eel River Forum, which was a group organized by Caltrout that's no longer meeting, but it was really great um, resource for information about the Eel River. And you gave a presentation that kind of changed my whole perception of watershed oh. science here in Mendocino <laughs> County. <laughs> okay. Um, I did not understand the dynamic groundwater storage um, that exists in the county. And, and so it really, as a uh, person who works in salmon restoration and works in watershed restoration and, and asking some really big questions about how water use, like environmental use of water, but also human use of water, is balanced with the needs of fish and other aquatic species, I realized there was this really important part of that conversation that I did not understand, and that was the the ways that groundwater is stored in our county. And um, so it was really um, helpful for me, to say the least, to get that introduction to your research. But that kind of stemmed my initial interest. And then I, ironically, was being interviewed recently about the most recent drought and we were talking a lot about climate change and changes in precipitation and, and how that relates to a warmer climate. And, um, and, and I realized after the interview that, again, I had, like, neglected to talk about the groundwater. Um, and so maybe that's a good place to start. Start because most of your research has really been focused, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like at understanding, you know, the mathematical relationship between precipitation, water storage, and discharge, but also understanding how vegetation is affected um, and how stream flow and temperatures are affected by like variable rainfall and water storage. And 
maybe that's where I should just start to you is asking one of the most kind of fundamental questions, but what is water storage and where is it? That's an awesome question. First, um, I'm totally flattered that your mind would be blown by a talk that I gave, but I have to say that uh, my mind has been equally blown by kind of all the, one, all the engagement from, you know, different scientists and, and, like, active sort of citizen scientists throughout the North Coast um, and just people like yourself that are interested and involved. Um, And it makes doing the science work and thinking about the implications and um, communicating it, like, so enjoyable. Um, So thank you for taking interest um, and thanks for kind of uh, being involved and trying to kind of work through it uh, in your own way. And I myself have been kind of, you know, over the past, I guess, decade of doing work on the North Coast, my whole perspective on how landscapes store and release water to trees and streams has also been, like, wildly altered. Um, And I have to kind of give credit to all the really excellent collaborators, some who have been around for a while up there and some who are still kind of just getting their, I guess, science careers started. So, you know, a lot of people associated with the Eel River Critical Zone Observatory, um, my PhD advisor, Sally Thompson, my postdoc advisor, Bill Dietrich, um, Mary Power at the Angelo Coast Range Reserve, and then just a bunch of folks who are um, involved with the kind of hydro uh, aspects of research, um, specifically in the South Fork Eel, um, who, you know, have kind of really helped me to, I guess, kind of, I don't know, uh, work on my own understanding and kind of figure out how, how some of these places work by having science conversations and asking questions as we go along and learning new things. Um, but when I, when I talk about or think about water storage, um, I guess I would say that I first would like to describe how I think about a watershed and at least in the kind of upland eroding environments like the Eel River, you know, where we have actively incising channels and eroding hill slopes and we have topography and we have streams um, flowing over bedrock. I really kind of think about these watersheds as really like collections of hill slopes where a hill slope you know, in a way, it's kind of like uh, the atomic unit of a landscape. And it's, it's bounded by a ridge on one side and a stream on the other side. And all of the, the water storage that we're interested in, the water storage that matters to plants, that matters to streams, um, it takes place within this kind of atomic hill slope unit. Um, and uh, the hill slope is a nice framework for thinking about water storage because we can kind of um, 
can kind of think of it as this like kind of, you know, fundamental unit of the landscape. We can kind of take a cross section, slice it open and look inside and see some pretty distinct structures. Um, we can really see how uh, the, the subsurface of the landscape is organized um, within these individual units. And the, the, I guess the, the term or the, the phrase that is commonly or being used more frequently in these types of watershed context is the critical zone. So the critical zone is defined as this sort of near-surface permeable layer of the earth spanning from fresh bedrock at depth uh, all the way up to the top of the tree canopy um, where water and biota and nutrients um, and all the things that matter for life and for ecosystems and society are kind of seasonally cycling and being stored and being released. Um, and from a water standpoint, the, the critical zone can be, I, I would say, in the most simplest sense, kind of broken up into three distinct reservoirs of water storage. Um, and this might look different in different places, but at least in in the context of the Eel River, those those three reservoirs kind of starting at the ground surface and working our way down look something like kind of near-surface soils. And soils are, we're all familiar with them. You can, you know, stick a shovel into it. Um, it's, it's mixed up. It's organic material. It um, is actually kind of bioturbated. Uh, it's, you know, it doesn't look like uh, it's not rocky necessarily. It's, um, you know, it can be tilled or you can, you know, stick a probe into it. You can easily disturb it or transport it. And water is commonly stored in soil as soil moisture. Um, and soil moisture is, you can really think of it as water stored um, in the pores between, um, you know, grains that m comprise the the soil. Um, and soil moisture is usually uh, kind of thought of as um, being an unsaturated water storage. That is, there's no water table, there's no groundwater that you can pump. Um, it's, instead, it's stored as water held under tension, like water held in a sponge um, is held. And it can be accessed by vegetation, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, drain gravitationally. It's not drip, drip, dripping out the bottom. Um, and then below that soil moisture layer um, in the subsurface, at least in the, the eel, what we find is that the soil layer is underlain by a really, really thick weathered bedrock zone. So this is above this fresh bedrock boundary that's at great depth, but it's below the soils and it's material, um, kind of parent bedrock material, which in the, the eel is primarily um, sedimentary type rock, shale derived type rock um, that has been weathered. It has been chemically altered. It's kind of crappy, crumbly rock that's full of fractures and pore spaces and it, too, can store significant volumes of water. And below the, the soil layer, this weathered 
bedrock layer can be either saturated or unsaturated. So like soil is unsaturated, um, or rather soil moisture is like unsaturated water storage. We also have this term that we refer to as rock moisture. And this is water that's stored in this weathered fractured bedrock. Um, and it's stored in this kind of sponge-like way where there's no kind of uh, – actual groundwater table or a free water surface, but instead you have water that's stored in the fractures and the pores um, of this weathered bedrock that's held under tension, like water held in a dry sponge, um, but that can nevertheless be accessed by trees, for example, um, or some of the instruments that we use to measure water storage. Below that weathered bedrock, um, unsaturated zone, if you go deeper, you eventually run into groundwater um, and commonly on the North Coast, the groundwater systems um, on these unit hill slopes um, are fractured bedrock aquifers. So, you know, it's not like the kind of groundwater system necessarily that you would find if you drilled a big deep hole in the Central Valley through all this alluvial kind of uh, river deposited material. Instead, this is a groundwater system that resides in fractures and um, different kind of, um, you know, kind of rocky uh, type structures in the deep subsurface. And it's this groundwater table um, that at least in some of our western watersheds in the South Fork Eel can be kind of found anywhere between, you know, 5 and 20, 30 meters below the surface. And it's this deeper fractured bedrock groundwater system that is the groundwater that is the water storage reservoir that's feeding adjacent streams. And the way that water gets to those streams is it moves down slope. That's kind of like the, I guess, the like fundamental uh, precept, I guess, of hydrology is that water goes downhill. Um, and the water in these fractured bedrock aquifers reaches the streams because it's flowing down slope. Um, and it emerges through seeps and springs primarily um, and, and feeds our, 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 our headwater watersheds. Um, and, of course, it's all these small hill slopes that taken together make up a watershed. Um, and it's all these, you know, small watersheds like the Elder Creek watershed where we do a lot of our work um, and have a lot of our kind of intensively monitored hill slopes that together um, make up the, the Eel River watershed. Uh, yeah, I hope that answers the question in a really long-winded way. If I had to summarize, I would say three really important water storage reservoirs in the subsurface that I conceptualize as soil moisture starting at the top, rock moisture below that, and then fractured bedrock aquifer-type groundwater storage um, in the deeper parts of the subsurface, and that's, that, that's what feeds the streams. Yeah, I, so I've been thinking about this a lot and in particular kind of tied to my next question to you. Um, but it's interesting, like when I kind of try to visualize these subsurface kind of the stratigraphy of these, these subsurface zones, I get in my mind, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not like a groundwater, the ground, the water that's stored subsurface here. It's not like in like a granite controlled system where you have like these massive, like literal, like water reservoirs, our water is really integrated into these macro pores, either in the soil 
or in the weathered bedrock. Um, And I think at one point you had like, I I like the, the description that you use as a sponge, but at one point I remember you also calling at least on the coastal um, uh, side of Mendocino County, where there's one kind of, of subsurface geology versus the Eastern part of the County. But in the coastal belt mudstone, I remember you kind of referring to it as like a leaky bucket. And I think about that a lot sure. now, about how our water um, storage is kind of um, kind of always in connection, I guess, with stream flow. It's not held for, for long periods of time necessarily. Um, so with that, could you explain, because I think this is really interesting, and I think people around the county will be really interested in learning what the differences between the subsurface geology in western and eastern Mendocino County is. So what, you know, kind of what are the characteristics of this coastal belt yeah. mudstone geology versus the central sure. belt melange? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the the South Fork, or rather, you know, much of the the North Coast is underlain by the Franciscan complex, which is a geological assemblage in Northern California. And the South Fork eel, really the whole eel, um, is made up of these three distinct geological belts that comprise the Franciscan complex. And so there's the coastal belt farthest to the west. You can really think of them as sort of like three parallel, like north-south running stripes um, of different rocks that underlie the the eel. And farthest to the west is the coastal belt mudstones. And the coastal belt mudstones are primarily shales and sandstones. Um, They're, you know, originally kind of ocean rocks. They were... Uh, formed in the Pacific Ocean Basin off the coast of California, you know, over millions of years of deposition um, of sediment and materials um, eroded and deposited, eroded off the coast and, you know, kind of um, accumulated over long time frames. And these shales and sandstones were eventually uplifted and... they form now the western part of the South Fork Eel River watershed. And the cool thing about these rocks is these coastal belt mudstones, they are really, really kind of prone to fracturing. And so if you, and you might have seen this if you've, you know, walked, um, you know, down, for example, the, you know, one of the stream beds in the South Fork, or if you've ever visited Elder Creek, Angelo Coast Range Reserve, you might see some rocks on the bank, um, shales, that look all crumbly and crappy and they're kind of breaking apart. These rocks are just really, really fracture prone. And so these coastal belt mudstones, um, because of their rheological properties, that is the material properties of the rock, um, they are very fractured and very weathered to great depths. And so you have these thin soils, but below that you have tens of meters of fractured, weathered sandstones and shales that have huge 
water storage capacity. And so the, the soils themselves are actually really, really thin, but it's this deeper fractured weathered bedrock that actually has the capacity to store huge amounts of water um, or rather larger volumes of water than the, the kind of nearer surface shallow soils. If you keep going east, though, you transition into a different belt of the Franciscan, and that's the central belt melange. And the melange has really identical origins as the coastal belt. Um, it was also, you know, kind of formed through the accumulation of sediments in the Pacific Ocean Basin. Um, but that rock that was eventually uplifted and now forms the central belt uh, portion of the Franciscan, it had a very different kind of tectonic trajectory. And so whereas the coastal belt mudstones, you know, they were uplifted, they're relatively intact, they, you know, you can see the bedding planes in the, in the, the, the bedrock, you can you know, you can identify like individual depositional events in, um, you know, road cuts and, you know, different, um, you know, places where you can actually see the underlying bedrock. The melange instead was really churned and just beat to crap in the subduction zone off the Pacific coast. And so although it has very similar kind of geochemical signatures, it sort of, you were to, you know, do a, a geochemical analysis on the rocks, they look really similar to the coastal belt mudstones, but they have instead this like very different kind of rheological um, setup. That is the material properties of these rocks are very different. Um, and they actually behave a little bit more like a, a clay, like a pulverized, imagine taking a coastal belt shale and just, you know, crushing it and running it through a, you know, a, a cement mixer and smashing it until it's turned into a kind of a fine, powdery, wet mush. Um, and that, that is what the, the melange is, this central belt melange geology. It's a matrix um, of this uh, kind of what's colloquially referred to as blue goo, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's shale derived, but it's this gooey kind of pulverized, uh, fracture resistant, um, kind of material that importantly has really, really low, um, water storage properties. And so unlike these fractured, um, mudstones and sandstones, it tends to kind of the melange, um, material, this matrix material tends to seal fractures. Um, it does not necessarily uh, conduct water as easily as these fractured sandstones and shales. And consequently, in the central belt watersheds, the depth to which you have kind of the porosity and the kind of uh, ability to store and release water seasonally, it's much more shallow. And so the central belt watersheds, and you can see this on a map, if you, if you look on Google Earth, um, you know, and you kind of find yourself on, you know, 101, say, between Willits and Laytonville, and you look a little bit to the west, and you look a little bit to the east, what you'll see is this really sharp transition from, you know, really dense conifer um, kind of hardwood evergreen forest 
to the west inside these coastal belt watersheds where you have these deep water storing kind of fractured shales and sandstones. And then just to the east, the central belt melange has this very different um, underlying rock that does not store water as well. It's not as the hill slopes are not as deeply weathered. And so what you find there is um, a very different ecosystem. You find primarily uh, Oregon white oak, Quercus cariana, um, and annual seasonal grasses, European grasses that were introduced to this, you know, white oak savanna. Um, and these are the two rock types that, you know, kind of make up most of the South Fork. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, weird geology going on in the Cedar Creek area um, near Leggett. But for the most part, most of the South Fork is um, underlain by these, these two geological types. And these two geological um, types have very different water storage properties. And consequently, you end up with very different ecosystems, um, you know, one that is requires significantly more water during the dry season, and then one that is, you know, more uh, tolerant of water limitation, like the oaks and the, the, the grasses that, that dry up and senesce by the, you know, by the middle of the summer. And so in this um, eastern central melange geology, as we're dealing with um, warmer temperatures, like, is there, I know there's still a lot to understand, but, like, do you think that the effects of a warming climate might be more dramatic in an area where there's a shallow aquifer that's more prone to runoff, given that what we understand about warming climates, there's a lot of um, runoff inefficiency that occurs just as a result of, of water either, you know, um, water leaving the kind of ecosystem at, at different rates yeah. and for different reasons. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I've not really thought, you know, so when I, when I think of increasing temperatures, at least in the eel, I think of, primarily higher demands for water from the atmosphere uh, on vegetation. And so, so that, it, that is to say that, you know, plants will treat the, the different tree species that, you know, we find in the North Coast might experience um, sort of more water demand from, from the increased temperatures from the atmosphere. And I guess if I had to, if I had to, to guess, I, you know, I, I would say that in the Western coastal belt watersheds, um, you know, where you have these bigger kind of more water hungry forests, like the Douglas fir, like the Madrone, uh, the, the dominant species in the coastal belt watersheds, I, I, I would I would guess that those forests will be using significantly more water um, under a warming climate. I don't know that. I've not run any models. I haven't done any you know experiments. I guess with um, you know with and this is something maybe you could explore with historical data. But but my guess is that those big productive ecosystems will be using significantly more water 
um, and at greater depths uh, in under a kind of a warming climate situation. Whereas to the east, you know, it's primarily these annual grasses and Oregon white oak. Um, both of these kind of plant communities, the oak and the grasses, really by the end of the dry season, they are very, very, you know, water limited. The melange, the central belt geology is not capable of storing significant volumes of water um, over the dry season. That's not necessarily a bad thing. The, the plants and the grasses that we find in those places are adapted to that low water storage capacity. The oaks are very water limitation tolerant. Um, they are pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty happy with, with dry and very, very dry conditions by the end of the dry season. And so my, my guess is at least from a runoff and water balance standpoint, you know, the fact that there's limited, very limited water storage in, in the central belt melange farther to the east, my guess is that the, the increased water demand from a warming climate will, will have potentially less of an impact on those central belt watersheds simply because there's really, you know, there's not really much water left. There's not really any extra water left for those ecosystems to access. Whereas mm -hmm. farther to the West, farther to the West, we, we, we know that by the end of the dry season, you know, the, the trees are, they're kind of, they're feeling water stressed. They're, you know, they're, they're definitely dialing back transpiration, but they're still transpiring. Um, you know, they're still, they're still accessing water in that deeper weathered fractured bedrock. Um, and, and my guess is that, you know, there's, there's more potential, um, for continued water use under kind of a warming climate situation in those, in those watersheds. That'd be my guess, but I don't know. It's a good question and it's hard to, hard to say exactly. And I'll just say that this is like a more general question is how will warming temperatures impact tree water use. Um, and it's, it's a hard question, um, you know, because plants are less photosynthetically efficient, the hotter it gets, um, you know, when it gets hotter, there's, you know, in theory, kind of more water demand from the atmosphere. Um, but at the same time, warmer air can hold more water. Um, and so the, the actual kind of evapotranspirative demand, um, that, that, that question um, is not, it's not fully resolved. So I, I think it's a good question, um, and I'm just speculating now, but uh, it's definitely worth, worth exploring, especially because of what you said, you know, like the water that the plants don't use um, is conceivably water that could end up in the stream. And... So understanding these like these bigger kind of climate change related stream flow generation questions requires answering this question that you just asked, and I think it's a good a good question for kind of future research. Um, and it is certainly uh, ongoing; it's definitely not answered satisfactorily well, yet. Thanks for for taking a stab at answering it. Anyways, it's super interesting. Um, so. Going back to um, 
an area where you have been involved in research, but kind of still related topic, you know, I know that you've been involved in a couple of different studies that looked at like plant water stress and response to rainfall variability and how that's yeah. mediated by subsurface water storage. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and like what you and your colleagues have learned about how yeah. subsurface water storage is really important for, for yeah. plants. Yeah, this is this is super cool. This is the most to me some of this has been some of the most kind of interesting work that has come out of the eel. And and the motivation is that, you know, a lot of climate projections, um, you know, the, the the prediction is not necessarily that um, total average annual rainfall is going to decrease. In fact, most of the, the climate models, at least for the North Coast, predict that average rainfall is going to stay about the same. But there are changes that are expected, and those changes have to do with the variability of rainfall. And so, you know, whereas the average, the mean, is kind of predicted to more or less kind of hover around where it is now, we do expect there to be um, higher highs and lower lows going forward, so more drought and more deluge. Um, and then importantly, you know, a, a kind of a, an increasingly unreliable water supply during the shoulder seasons. These are some of the, the main projections from, you know, the latest and greatest climate models that are out there. And so that means, you know, just frankly, just less reliable water supply, especially less reliable in the shoulder seasons. So thinking, you know, October, November, and then late spring, um, those those periods are going to be increasingly kind of uncertain. Um, and so that motivated us to to think about not you know not how much how much rainfall kind of is there on average um, in you know in the North Coast and how how do ecosystems respond to that, but instead how how does deforest and streams um, respond to the annual kind of swings, the interannual variability um, in rainfall totals? Because it's this, this variability question, this volatility in annual rainfall that is going to be really important, um, at least under the kind of change scenarios that we expect on the North Coast. And what we stumbled on by kind of, you know, virtue of the fact that we, we had many, many years of data, um, you know, we were lucky enough to have worked at these sites for so long that we were able to see the dry years and we were able to see the wet years and kind of observe what happened in both those scenarios. And what we saw was really surprising. And our observation in our two field sites, one maybe a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Elder Creek, the Antelope Coast Range Reserve. That's a coastal belt watershed, so pretty large water storage capacity in the, those deeper um, sandstones and shales, fractured weather bedrock. Um, and then our other field site is a little farther east underneath that central belt melange geology. Um, and in both of those cases, we saw that in very, very wet years, and in very, very dry years, the vegetation water use that we observed was pretty stable. That is, you know, if you compared the, the water use um, 
in the 2015 or 2016 water years, the pretty dry kind of drought period water years. And then you compare that to, say, the 2017 water year evapotranspiration, the kind of plant plant status during that very that record rainfall year. In both of those cases, the plants used more or less the same amount of water. And so the, the question is, like, how can you have – you know, literally a threefold increase in rainfall, you know, from 2015 to 2017, yet the plants, the trees use almost the exact same volume of water. It's almost like they didn't even know that the drought happened. They didn't even know that the big flood year happened. Um, and the answer we figured out has to do with the subsurface water storage capacity of these two watersheds. Um, and the key insight is that the subsurface water storage capacity in both the Costa Belt watersheds and in the, the Central Belt Melange watersheds, both of those water storage capacities are significantly less than average annual rainfall. And so the, the kind of silly, I guess, like picture that I have in my mind when I, when I think about this is I think of the watershed storage capacity is like a cup. And I think about the average rainfall as being like a pitcher filled with water. And the key insight is it doesn't matter, you know, if your pitcher is all the way full of water or halfway full of water or quarter full or two thirds full. All that matters is that you're able to fill up that small cup with the pitcher and so it doesn't matter how much total there is. You, you can imagine pouring that big pitcher into the cup. It overflows, right, as soon as that cup has reached capacity. You can keep pouring water on it all day. It's not going to store more. And so what we refer to this condition as, as being a, a storage capacity limited condition, that is to say that when it rains more, you don't necessarily store more. When it rains less, you don't necessarily store less you almost always kind of reach the top of the cup and, you know, any additional rainfall beyond that is just kind of, it's overflow. And in, in, in the watershed kind of context, overflow is stream flow during the winter time. Um, and so what that means is that this subsurface water storage capacity, the fact that it's significantly less than the average annual rainfall means that annual variations in rainfall don't necessarily translate into annual variations in subsurface water storage. Consequently, the variability in rainfall doesn't necessarily translate into variability in plant water access because, after all, it's the plants, or rather it's the subsurface water storage that the plants are relying on for their dry season water use. Um, and so since that subsurface water storage variable is not um, strongly coupled to the kind of annual rainfall patterns, uh, you see this like total disconnect between, you know, the wet years and the dry years and what the plants themselves are actually experiencing. Um, the, the important, there's a couple of important caveats here. One, of course, that we're referring to this as storage capacity limited. There are places in the state that are not that way, and we refer to them as precipitation limited. And you can use the cup analogy again here and say, you know, imagine you have a big cup instead of a small cup. 
um, and you have your same pitcher. If you have a big cup, you know, if, it, if you pour more water into it, you store more water. If you pour less water into it, you store less water. And so in places that have this large subsurface water storage capacity relative to annual rainfall patterns, you do see that forests, trees, et cetera, are very sensitive to annual rainfall patterns. And so there's these two kind of groupings, and we see that the state, you know, most watersheds in California lie on, you know, somewhere along the spectrum between storage capacity limited and precipitation limited. What's important, and someone actually brought this up to me after I, I gave a talk on this storage capacity limitation idea, and they, the person said, you, you should be careful communicating this because, you know, you might give people the idea or the sense that, you know, it, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how much water we pump, for example, from groundwater for streams because, you know, the, the, the storage and the rainfall are decoupled. And so, you know, maybe that gives us permission to kind of, you know, use as much water as we want during dry years or something like that. Um, but I, I would actually caution the, the opposite and say, you know, I think that there's a, a perception that in very wet years, especially on the North Coast, you know, because we got a lot of rainfall during the 2017 water year, that means that, you know, we have permission to use more water or to pump more water from the hill slopes or whatever. Uh, but, but in the storage capacity kind of framework, you know, just because it rains more doesn't mean you stored more. And so I, I think it's an important kind of consideration when we're thinking about water use and kind of balancing you know, ecological kind of sustainability and variables that we, we care about with human water needs. Um, you know, we, having an understanding of how water is actually stored um, is essential for, you know, determining our, our, our strategies for using water during wet years and dry years. And this, this kind of storage capacity limitation framework is, I think, an important insight for informing those types of management strategies. Um, yeah, that was great. In fact, because the next you kind of answered the next question I wanted to ask you, which was kind of related to your last comment, which, you know, um, this idea that like how, of how precip precipitation variability results in the variability of water storage. And so yeah. I actually had this preconceived notion that, you know, we – with restoration that we needed to, because of all of the, because of a history of, of um, different landscape uses that we had reduced the ability of our, uh, our ability to store water in the ground. And so I mm. was looking at ways that we could potentially increase groundwater infiltra infiltration. And then I sure. saw your presentation and I thought, oh, man, I am going about this the wrong way because <laughs> apparently we don't need to, we can't even, even if I wanted to try to increase the amount of storage capacity in our coastal watersheds, I couldn't do it. It's, sure. it's not sure. realistic. Um, so I started thinking instead 
about how in these years where we have more rainfall and as, you know, um, weather models predict, we, we will potentially yeah. have uh, more intense uh, rainfall events in shorter durations of time. How do we retain that water on the landscape yeah. a little bit longer so that it's not right. lost to stream flow immediately? Um, sure. The other thing that really, you know, was kind of uh, earth shattering for me was this concept that, that, you know, in years when there is less rainfall, you know, you expect all of this mortality with, vegetation and and that here that that really is not necessarily a factor and it's just fascinating to me that the ways that vegetation are accessing water subsurface and they're accessing water that we can't necessarily get so it's not like a necessarily a competition of resources um i was on the yeah i was on the angelo reserve once getting a tour of some of the monitoring equipment that your colleagues are have in place and we picked up some of that mudstone which really just feels like super condensed clay i mean you can break it with your fingers it's just like a really um compact but soft substance and right um i'm and i feel terrible about this i'm completely forgetting the name of the woman who gave us this tour but she was talking about the research that she was looking at where they were trying to track you know, rainfall, like a raindrop, and it's passed sure. into the soil and then taken back up through a Douglas fir, and they realize that the, the firs are literally just leaching water out of this mudstone, um, yeah. which is such a neat and interesting adaptation for, for plants. And Yeah, yeah, it's such a, I think this has been, I, I'm like, so every time I think about this, I, I'm just really, I guess, proud of the, the work that has happened in, in the North Coast and the Eel. So you might be referring to Daniela Rempe, who's now a professor at University of Texas, Austin. Um, That's exactly who it was. Yes. <laughs> Daniela, Daniela has done, like, so much transformative work, and I would say the most important among her most important contributions is really uh, highlighting, like really just like showing definitively how important bedrock water storage is for forests and trees and, and, and plants and just generally the water budget in these seasonally dry watersheds. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, a lot of, work that Daniela has, has done is, has revealed that the Douglas fir and the, the Madrone and these different trees, especially in the coastal belt, are, are, are accessing significant volumes of water, you know, below the soils but above the groundwater. They're, they're grabbing this kind of weathered, fractured bedrock, um, unsaturated sponge water uh, that's, that's kind of stored between these two, you know, the upper and lower reservoirs that I that I just kind of described earlier. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's kind of a, some of the data sets and some of the observations that have come out of Daniela's work and, and, you know, just the larger kind of context at at the Angelo Coast Range Reserve have really contributed to like a pretty impactful global understanding that, especially in these places where there's long dry periods, 
you know, Mediterranean type climates like California, it, you know, it's, it's a good example, but there are other seasonally dry ecosystems, savanna climates, monsoonal climates, other Mediterranean climates throughout the, you know, the, the globe, like parts of Western Australia, South Africa, parts of South America. In these places, you know, there are, are months, um, you know, of the year where there's zero rainfall yet plants remain productive, they continue to transpire, like how do they do that? And a lot of Daniela's work and a lot of the work that we continue to do throughout the state, um, you know, in the Southern Sierra now, we're doing some work uh, in the Eastern parts of the coast range, we're doing some work and all these places where, you know, our, our work is kind of revealing how important this deeper weathered bedrock water storage reservoir is for vegetation. Um, and importantly, it's, it's not necessarily groundwater. It's not the, the water that's necessarily feeding the stream. It's, it's this unsaturated water storage, this water that's held under tension, like water in a dry sponge that the trees are able to access. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's a pretty cool insight that I, I would say it's certainly you know, there's a, a rich history of trying to understand whether bedrock water storage processes, but Daniela's work and the work that has come out of the, the South Fork has really brought it into focus for for ecohydrology and for understanding, you know, forest function and, and forest water balance kind of questions more generally. Yeah, so so kind of getting back to the comment that was presented to you after after you've given one of your presentations about your research, what what would you say to people this year? Like I can imagine if someone was going to call in right now, you know, we around the county are looking at one of the worst, you know, precipitation rainfall years on record um, yeah. in different parts of the county, you know, that average rainfall for the water year and even just like today is about half or even less than yeah. 40% of what it would be. So, and, and, and there are, there is evidence, you know, in reduced stream flow, um, you know, just in people's domestic water use. So a lot of people rely yeah. on shallow groundwater wells. How do you explain what's happening right now with water storage in the context yeah. of this very dry year? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because maybe a, a, like a nuance that I didn't I didn't really art articulate earlier is that al although we see in, in the record this pretty strong kind of decoupling between annual rainfall patterns and water storage in the subsurface um, in some of our North Coast catchments, that's not to say that, you know, rainfall variability and drought don't matter. Um, and that is especially the case in years where we have really dry, warm springs. And so this, you know, this year, these last couple months of the, of the wet season, we have had very little rain. It has been very warm. Um, and, and, and I would say if, if something, you know, if there was a rainfall pattern that was most important for kind of, groundwater sustainability and ecosystem function during the dry season, it is really this spring kind of late wet season, shoulder season that is the most important for, 
for understanding water availability in the coming months. And unfortunately, in this case, the, you know, our, this, this drought has been accompanied by, it's really kind of a worst case scenario drought, in my opinion, which is to say the majority of the rain arrived in the early parts of the wet season. We have not had very much at all in these last couple months. Um, and, you know, even more kind of alarmingly, the last couple of months have been quite warm, um, well above average temperatures. And those things kind of combined, I think, are definitely cause for concern. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's pretty clear that stream flows are already historically low. Um, if anyone has the time, there's a uh, Eli Assyrian gave a really cool talk um, at the um, Eel River Recovery Project Zoom series this last week on stream flow patterns throughout the the Eel. Um, in this, you know, kind of historically, but also kind of talk. He, he talked a little bit about this year's um, kind of stream flow patterns. And, you know, Eli was just showing how historically low the stream flows are. And that's, you know, I would say that sort of in a, that's not because we've had low total annual rainfall per se, but instead it's because this, this kind of spring season has been pretty bad. And, and Eli kind of, I thought this was really cool, pointed out that, you know, in the past there have been very dry um, spring seasons with a very late kind of early summer rainfall event. Um, and that has bumped flows up. So like these kind of, you know, last minute saves from, you know, some very freakish like June rainfall event has bumped flows up and, and really led to pretty significant flows over dry seasons, despite the fact that total rainfall has been really low. I'm not saying that's going to happen. It probably won't happen. Statistically, it's really unlikely that we'll get that kind of flow saving of rainfall event this year, but it's more to just kind of point out that, you know, it's, it's, it's these kind of late spring conditions that are really the most uh, salient, like the most important for, for, kind of setting the stage for what happens in the, in the dry season. And, and that's the case in storage capacity, limited landscapes in general, we, we would say, I think. Um, whereas in other parts of the state, it's, it's really the annual rainfall patterns, the total that, that are the most, that are really, really relevant. Whereas for us in the, in the North coast, it's really these kind of shoulder, these kind of um, shoulder season conditions that are, really essential for figuring out kind of, you know, what's coming for the, for the upcoming dry season. Um, so yeah, I, I don't necessarily have any kind of advice or anything, but I, I, I myself am a little bit, I'm amazed at how, how dry things are right now. And I, I, you know, the writing's on the wall. It's pretty, it's going to be a dry summer. Um, and yeah, we'll just, we'll just have to see how, uh, have to see how things, play out, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely concerned for, um, you know, some of the, the streams and, and some of the kind of ecosystems. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think it's actually really important to understand that how the relevance of, of rainfall timing, because 
Um, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that our cup didn't get refilled. Like it needed a top off. And this is, I think one of the things that's like really challenging to understand as our kind of water, um, management systems are being put to the test right now. And, and that is that the, the timing of rain, the, with climate change, the timing of rainfall is really important. I'll just say that in in our seasonally dry climate, rainfall occurs, arrives primarily during the winter, and energy and sunlight and warmth arrives primarily during the summer. And so there's a mismatch between, you know, when water is available, you know, which ecosystems need to do their thing and organisms rely on for, um, you know, for, for life. And when there's energy and, and, and sunlight and warmth to utilize that water for productivity. Um, and so that is a, that's like a kind of a, an essential characteristic of our Mediterranean climate. And what that means for me is that how water is stored in the subsurface during the wet season and how it's transferred um, over to, you know, the kind of warmer dry season months, that kind of, you know, middleman process, that kind of bridge between the wet season and the growing season is all mediated by the subsurface. And so, how water is stored, where it's stored, you know, how it's released, how it's accessed by trees, how it gets, you know, from these hill slope groundwater systems down to the stream. Um, all of that is, I would say, is, you know, understanding that storage question, I guess, is especially important in our seasonally dry Mediterranean climate. This kind of offset between water and energy availability really elevates the importance of the subsurface as um, kind of a bridge between the seasons. And that concludes my interview with David Drawley, research hydrologist with the U.S. Forest Service, and this episode of the Ecology Hour. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.